Well, a few months back, my family started what turned out to be a routine, a weekly routine. We didn't plan it that way, but each Sunday, my in-laws would invite us over for dinner on Sunday afternoon. It was a great time. Our kids were really excited because they got to play with Nana with all their toys. My wife got to visit with her mom, and I got to sit on a couch beside my father-in-law with my feet up watching TV. Much needed relaxation, especially after a busy Sunday morning. Now, I get along well with my in-laws, but there's one thing that my father-in-law and I don't really have in common, and that is golf. But seeing it was his house and he had live TV, any sport was good enough for me. So we got into watching golf every Saturday afternoon. It wouldn't exactly be my choice, but if you promise not to tell, I might have even started to like it a little bit. And one weekend was a father-son tournament on the TV where the dads played with their sons together competing as other father-son duos. And the age range was, was pretty varied. There were two people who were over 60 playing father-son. There was some as young as 12 years old playing with their dad. And during the coverage, the TV station put on kind of a montage of the sons and the dads throughout the weekend. And it was amazing how much the sons were like their father, like uncanny. They stood like them. They had the same swing as them. Of course, they dressed like them. Even little tendencies were the same. And I brought a picture for you. I'd looked for as many as I could, but of course, Tiger Woods stole all the publicity with his son, Charlie. And you can see how they're standing, exactly the same standing, leaning on the putter the same way. Even little tendencies, like as they watched the putt roll down the green, they would both lift their foot up and like, Ugh! right down to the most minuscule thing, the sons were mimicking their father. And as you will remember from our series in Ephesians, which we're continuing today, that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are children of God. This, this is something that Scripture emphasizes over and over again. But what we don't find in Scripture, at least this is the only time we find it, just one time that we are commanded to imitate God. Many places tell us to imitate Christ or to imitate other church congregations. Even Paul tells us to imitate himself. But here is the one and only time where we are told to imitate God. You think Charlie Woods had big shoes to fill. We ask, is that even possible? Certainly God has attributes that we can't imitate. We should never try to be exactly like God. But in our text today, Paul enlightens us on how we as children of God should imitate him. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians 5. We'll be reading starting in verse 1. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Here's what Paul writes. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure that of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. We'll leave it there, and Pastor Chad will pick up the rest when he speaks again in a couple weeks. But what Paul writes here comes from the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 32, where Paul reminds believers that they are to forgive because they are forgiven through Christ. But he continues here in chapter 5, not only are we forgiven, but we are children. We are children of God. And it's important to realize that before we get to the rest of Paul's message today. We must first realize our identity as children of God. Because after we realize that, the whole relationship between us and God is based on that. We can be obedient because we know that the relationship we have with God is out of love. We obey because we are loved. We aren't loved just because we obey. See, the love of God is proceeding our obedience, and it's what stimulates us to be obedient and to listen to what God has to say, to imitate Him. That's why we should imitate God. But Paul answers the how in this passage with three different kinds of walks. And the first walk we want to look at is to walk in love. Point one, walk in love. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know, love is a word that is misused all over the place. It seems everyone has their own definition of what love means. But Paul is very clear here. We are to love as Christ loved us. He breaks it down into three different parts. The first is that he gave himself up for us. A great passage comes from Philippians 2, verse 5. To have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ gave up everything, not just material things, but he gave up equality with God. He became a man and emptied himself, and not only that, he gave himself up for death. See, Christ is the ultimate example of a self-giving love. And that love's not easy. It's hard. It's completely selfless. It has nothing to do with ourselves. We are called to die to self for those that we love. Paul describes this love as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice. Now, Paul is obviously bringing up the image of an Old Testament sacrifice brought to the temple, an offering to God that would be sweet-smelling to the Lord. But it also reminds us that it might be sweet-smelling to God, but an offering comes with some sort of giving of self. And also, something else has to die. In the case of the offering, it was the animal. In the case of us, we have to die to self. So saying we are to love others like Jesus, to be a fragrant offering to the Lord, sounds good. Let's be honest, we fail at it over and over again, don't we? It reminds me of chemistry class in high school. Each year, my 
my chemistry teacher would have the grade 9 students do a lab. He would always do it for the first week or two of school, and the goal was to combine different chemicals and compounds to create fragrances. Depending on the combinations, you could make something that smelled like grape, something that smelled like orange or lemon, and so on. It was a pretty neat lab, especially for a grade 9 getting into high school. However, there was a great danger in this lab. If you didn't mix the ingredients just right or have the correct ratios, then you could end up with a very pungent, overpowering odor that resembled something like a rotting cheese sandwich mixed with an old dirty gym sock. It was so powerful, it filled the entire school for days. All 1,800 students instantly knew that, oh, another batch of grade 9s failed the experiment again. See, they tried to make a beautiful fragrance, but instead ending up smelling like cheesy gym socks. When we love sacrificially, we're a pleasing fragrance to God. But more often than not, we do things that stink. We fail all the time, but why? It's because we think love should be easy, don't we? If we love someone, it should be easy to love them. But it's not easy, it's hard. It's painful, and there's really nothing appealing about dying to yourself. We're so often tempted to be selfish rather than selfless. We know that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, but it's so hard for us to not be self-seeking as we attempt to do that. And Paul knows this. And so he continues reminding believers who they are in Christ. They are children of light, and he warns them to stay away from the temptations of darkness. And so our second point this morning is walk as light. Take a look at verse 3. It says, but sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness should not even be named among you. Paul just spoke of the kind of love that Christ had for us, completely selfless, and now these sins are completely opposite of selflessness. They are all about gratifying our own desires at the expense of others. You know, these sins can really be boiled down into two main ones, lust and greed, both of which are a stench to God. And yet at the same time, these same sins that smell so bad to God come wafting our way and they tempt us kind of like a plate of cookies that smell so good after they've been baked. In his commentary, Kent Hughes brings up what he calls the cookie jar syndrome. He tells a story about how a mother made a new batch of cookies one afternoon. And after the cookies were baked, she cooled and placed them in a cookie jar, put them on the counter, and said to her family, nobody touch these till after dinner. Well, it wasn't long. After that, she heard in the other room the cookie jar lid come off. And she said from the, from the living room, son, what are you doing? And her son in the kitchen with his hand in the jar said, don't worry, mom. I just have my hand in the jar resisting temptation. The fact is, no one can resist temptation with their hand in that cookie jar. In our lives, we are open to seeing cookie jars everywhere. They are all around us. Everywhere we turn is some sort of temptation. And although on some level we know that that cookie doesn't satisfy, we have such a hard time keeping our hand out of the jar. It's a problem that all of us have. And Paul knows it's a problem. He understands, he understands the seriousness of it. He understands that this rots Christ's people from the inside out. So he addresses it in this section. See, sexual sin is the one place where pride, power, 
and pleasure are all concentrated in some unusual degree. They're the place where so many have fallen. It's the entrance into the lives of believers. It's a human nature issue. And every culture is tempted in a similar way. So what does Paul do? He instructs avoidance of these things. Now let me say that although Paul says to avoid these things, these are distortions of what God had originally planned. Paul is not saying that all sex is bad. In fact, it's a gift from God if it's used the way it's intended to be within a marriage covenant. Now Paul is referring to any use of these sins that are outside of what God intended them to be. And he mentions three things. First, sexual immorality, which is the word porneia, which where we get our English word pornography from. But it can be used for any sexual sin. Secondly, he says all impurity. And this word would include sexual sins of that first word, but probably goes a little bit beyond and talks about all defiling processes. The last one is covetousness. This can refer to greed of all kinds, whether sexual or material. And as we all know, greed is a destructive and powerful force. But Paul doesn't just focus on those. He, he talks about our language as well. Later on in verse 4, he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Now, many of you, when you heard this text, you were probably like, oh, yeah, you're going to tell us exactly what we can do and what we can't do, and you're going to make some funny jokes about crude joking. But I'm not going to provide you with a list of activities that are okay and a list of ones to avoid. Why? Because I don't think that's Paul's point here. He's not giving you a list of what you should do. He doesn't really go into detail, does he? He says these things are out of place. They shouldn't even be named among believers. In other words, Paul is saying these things are not for you. So if you are questioning something in your own life that you think may be sinful, it may fall into any of these categories, let the Holy Spirit work in your life to expose them. The main point Paul is making here is that there is no place for these sort of sins among children of God. And therefore, avoid them. So how can we avoid them? Well, if we stick with our cookie analogy, we're going to starve it. We're going to keep our hands out of the jar. Paul says these things, you must not even have a hint, not a crumb. They are out of place for all believers. So he instructs to avoid even the smallest compromise. And should remind us how easily sin progresses in our lives and how important it is to stay away from it. He was writing to the Ephesians who were in a sinful culture similar to ours. Sexual practices were rampant and often part of other religions and parts of the culture. And just like us, the Ephesians had to struggle with the norms of society, and they had to discern what was acceptable as believers and what was not. And Paul here points out what may be perfectly normal for someone down the street is not acceptable for the people of God, not even a hint of it. Writer of Proverbs 4 says, Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. And Paul writes in Colossians 3, in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And skip to verse 8. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And Jesus took it even further than that. Paul is saying, hey, don't do it don't talk about it. And Jesus says this in Matthew 5. 
You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It is better that you cut it out and throw it away. Now, I, I know this thing isn't a body part, but for many of you, it's very close to one. Perhaps you might even lose your eye so you could keep your phone. But if you have your cell phone, pull it out. Pull your, pull your phone out right now. I want you to unlock it. Put your thumbprint in, put your code in. Maybe it already recognized your face, whatever. And so it's unlocked. And what if I were to tell you to pass that phone that's unlocked now to someone across the room? If your heart started racing a little bit more, if something about giving access to someone, your email history, maybe a text with your boyfriend or girlfriend, maybe a website you've been on, maybe even the recently watched list on your Netflix account. Is there something there that needs to be cut out? Have you been convicted of that? I'm not going to make you do that, don't worry. You can put your phones away. But it's important for us to think like that. Are we participating in any sort of sexual impurity, any sort of grieve or coveting, any sort of filthy, foolish humor or crude language? And it's not just limited to our phones, okay? Those of you who didn't pull phones out, there's other ways that you could be trapped into sin that way. If that's any part of our life, our hand's in that cookie jar. And we have to pull our hand out. And what does Paul tell us to do instead? He says, instead, be thankful with thanksgiving. You might stop and think, like, what? Be thankful? How is that supposed to stop me from keeping my hand out of that cookie jar? Well, first of all, we can be thankful for God's grace in making us his children, giving us his Holy Spirit, and hence the power to overcome sin. One commentator said that the thanksgiving is the basic attitude of the Christian. It forces attention on God, his grace, and his desires rather than our own desires. See, all the sins that Paul has mentioned are about self-indulgence, but thankfulness actually turns us away from self and looks at God. Klein Snodgrass writes that thankfulness is an antidote for sin, for it is difficult or impossible to do both give thanks and to sin at the same time. See, thankfulness shows that we are content with what God has provided for us. Even thankful for some of the things that have been distorted that he tells us to avoid. We can be thankful when they are properly used and benefited from just as God has designed them to be. Not all sex is bad when it is used properly within a marriage relationship. Not all material possession is bad, and we can be thankful for the things that God has provided for us. Not all humor is bad, but we can be thankful for clean humor that entertains us. But it is so easy for those things to be abused and distorted. Language or actions that flirt with the boundaries of what is pure and what is not. And that can easily spiral down quickly. And hence, we can be thankful for the proper use of those things. These things have been given by God and to be used in ways according to His will. If they're not used in those ways, we need to avoid them. So Paul exhorts the believers to avoid them, not only in action, not only in word, but in thought. 
And he continues to warn the Ephesians and he warns us of the implications of those who continue to practice these things. In verse 5, he says, Everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or who covets has no inheritance in the kingdom of God or Christ. And the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. No inheritance. What does that mean? Are you being written out of the will? Well, not exactly. I would argue it means that you weren't even in the will to begin with. See, Scripture is clear that no practicing sinner, someone who persists in lifestyle of sin, has eternal life. Now, do Christians fall into these sins? Yes. But true Christians will not persist in them because they have the Holy Spirit, as Galatians 5.18 tells us. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensually, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. John put it a little bit nicer in 1 John 3. Little children. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. People really don't take judgment too seriously, do they? You see it at funerals, you know. Everyone's in a better place. It sounds nice, but it's not really true. They're empty words, as Paul would call them, Universalism is attractive. We would like to say that every single person is going to be with us in heaven. But it's a lie. Don't let anyone deceive you of that. Paul is clear here that judgment and wrath are real. He's warning believers out of love, and he warns them to stay away from this sin. Don't listen to those who will try to trick you to say it's okay. Rather, don't even become partners with them, which means that we don't join them in their sin. It doesn't mean we avoid people. It means we avoid their sin. And then Paul calls the believers to be what they are in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There's so many verses that could be used here, so I'm going to just run off three pretty quick. So at the back, you can be ready. First John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul is saying here, as children of God, you are light. Be what you are. Walk as light. He goes on to scramble his metaphors a little bit, but we can still understand them. He calls it the fruit of light. 
He uses three virtues to describe what walking in light looks like. All that is good, all that is right, all that is true. It's basically a summary of the fruit of the Spirit. And again, Paul doesn't list off all the things you need to do, but he gives a good principle to follow. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. There's your principle. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So in contrast, avoid all the fruit, fruitlessness of darkness, those things he mentioned in verse 3 to 7. They are worthless. They don't produce anything that is good or right or true. But instead, live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. In whatever you do, work in work or in deed, in, in word or in deed, sorry, ask yourself, does it please the Lord? Will this be a good, fragrant offering to my God or is it going to smell like gym socks? Well, that's great. How simple it would be if Paul stopped there. Avoid the darkness. You're light. Be light. Darkness and light can't mix. Just stay away from it. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says we have to expose the darkness. Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, the thing about being a light is you have to let it shine. And it doesn't really shine if you are in light. A flashlight isn't helpful if it's daytime out. A light is only effective in the midst of darkness. So although earlier Paul instructs us to have nothing to do with sinful acts of darkness, not even to partner with them, it has to be done in such a way where we have life-on-life impact with those who are in the darkness. You can't go move to a cabin and hide away from society. You need to be immersed in culture. Simply put, we need to be in the world, but not of it. We need to shine in the darkness, exposing what lies there. Now, some of you have taken this course with me, but for those of you who don't know, I, I run a plan to protect course for our child protection policies here in the church. And there's a section I include in that training about reporting child abuse. I explain how we're supposed to report child abuse to my participants, but then I always ask them two questions. Why would someone not want to report and expose what they thought to be child abuse? And the second one is, why should we report and expose potential child abuse. So as I mentioned previously, we don't expose darkness by standing on a street corner yelling at people. Picketing with signs is probably not the way to go. What we need is wisdom, discernment, gentleness, and courage to know how to confront and expose the works of darkness. We can use the words of Colossians 4, verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be graciously seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We share with them in the love of Jesus. We are prepared to give them a gentle answer for why we think what is going on is wrong, and we share the gospel with them, knowing that Jesus forgives all sins for those who trust in him. But why don't we want to expose? We know we should, but why don't we want to? When I ask that question in my training, I get answers like, oh, it's kind of awkward, or I'm afraid of what might happen if I do. They're ultimately fears about ourselves. 
How are they going to react to me? What am I going to look like after I do this? And there's no difference in exposing sin. We know when people are called out, the natural response is to become offensive or to resist correction. We don't want to be seen as intolerant. Or we worry that we might be shaming them and they'll pull away even more. Or perhaps we're afraid of being ostracized or losing that friendship. Or at the very worst, we're afraid of persecution for our faith. But if you think about that, what are all of those about? Me, 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 me. It's not about them. It's actually backwards to the kind of love that we were called to back in verse 1 and 2. It's self-seeking instead of being sacrificial. And why should we expose? Well, just like with potential child abuse cases, we expose because it's actually a loving act. It's for the safety of those who are involved. It takes the self-interest out of it and it puts the focus on the ones who are in those dangerous situations. So when we expose sin for what sin is, it's out of love. Sometimes when believers are caught in sin, it takes someone stepping out and just exposing it to them. Sometimes if it's with unbelievers who don't know Jesus, they need to understand their sinful nature, and yet there's a Savior who came to save them from that. We have to expose the darkness because it's harmful for anyone who continues in it and for those around them. So just think of all the hurt that could potentially be saved if we were to expose this sort of darkness. How someone could be saved from falling into financial debt if a friend just gently spoke to them about being content with what God has for them. How marriages could be saved if someone exposed secret emails they might have found or calls a brother out who is flirting with someone who's not his wife. How a preteen girl could be saved from trafficking if someone were to expose information to her parents that might seem questionable. How so many young people could be saved from addictions to pornography if someone spoke out and found, spoke out and told someone about what they found on their computer. Think of all the sinful corruption that could be avoided if it was exposed before it started catching root. Many of you are aware of several bills the government has put out over these past year. I was in a Zoom call a few months back with pastors from all across Ontario sitting there to ask a Christian lawyer advice on what we should do about them. How should we respond? Do you know what the lawyer said? He said, now isn't the time to stand. And we all looked at him really strangely, and he continued, the time to stand was a decade ago when I warned where this was headed. But we failed to stand. We failed to expose. We turned the other way. Church. We need to expose darkness for what it is. We have to bring the light. During that same course that I teach, there's a slide that says, now that you've seen it, now that you've seen the truth, don't turn a blind eye to it. As believers, we have seen the truth. We know the destructiveness of darkness. Now that you know it, don't turn a blind eye to it. Expose it for what it is. If we look at verse 14, Paul quotes a poem or a line from a hymn. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. you know, we're not sure where Paul got this from. Perhaps it's a hymn used at a baptism service or something, but the application is clear. Some people are asleep, drifting off in darkness, headed for death. 
They need a wake-up call. And just in the morning when that sun rises up, goes through the blinds and wakes you up, that's what the children of God are doing. As they walk as light, they are the wake-up call for these people. So we expose the darkness. It leads me to my final point quickly. In verse 15 and 16, we walk in wisdom. Walk wisely, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Part of this instruction directly relates to what Paul was speaking of. Be wise by avoiding the cookie jar. Keep your hand out of it. And we be wise by helping others keep their hands out of the cookie jar too. But most Christians don't really consider time as important as they should. It's been said that it's almost impossible to overemphasize the importance of time as a believer. One commentator likened it to a fairy tale when the clock is just about to strike 12. We can all relate to Cinderella, can't we? We know that there's a time coming, but we want to push as much as we can. Just a few more minutes. Just one more look. I'll bring that conversation up with that person another day. But we're living in the last days. We don't know when Christ is going to come back. So we need to make the most of our time now. What do we prioritize? How do you use your time? We are a very busy culture, and yet what are we busy doing? We're so busy that we don't have time for the important things in life, and yet the reason we're often so busy is we're trying to save for a day where we don't have to be busy anymore. We can put our feet up and just relax in retirement. And as a result, our lives are all focused in the wrong thing. And when I read this verse, I thought of a sermon illustration given by John Piper. Many of you will know he's a popular pastor and writer, but a big turning point in his ministry was when he gave a talk back in the year 2000, and he used this illustration, and I thought, after what we just read from Paul, it would be fitting. So here's what Piper said in this conference. He says, I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. The title of the article was, Start Now and Retire Early. See, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast. They were, took it five years ago when Bob was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. Piper continues. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. He says, I get 40 minutes to plead with you. Don't do it. Don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, do not buy that dream. He kind of sounds like Paul, doesn't he? Don't be deceived by those empty words. He continues. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells are going to be your last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account for what you've used your time doing. You bring it to him and you say, here it is, Lord. Here's my shell collection. He then pleaded with the crowd. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. Be wise about your time, about your priorities. The days are evil and the devil wants nothing more than to have God's children of light snuffed out, hidden away on a boat or on a beach somewhere for the rest of their lives, collecting shells rather than sharing the light. These are not pursuits that wisely use your time. That's why in Colossians 3.2 we're commanded... Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. See, without this conscious, active, 
determined, disciplined way of directing our minds, our thoughts will be unproductive at worst, or at best, sorry, and evil at worst. That illustration from John Piper is an example of exposing the darkness, getting rid of that lie, waking up the sleepers who don't even realize they are snoozing in the dark. And remember what's in the darkness, where the evil one thrives. We're reminded of it in 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. See, if we don't use this time, evil most certainly will either by entrapping us in sin with our hands in the cookie jar or simply telling us it's okay to avoid darkness as long as we are in the light. But avoidance isn't enough. So let me close with this. If you are here this morning and you call Jesus your Savior, then you are a beloved child of God. And by the power of the Holy Spirit that is within you, be what you are. Walk in love modeled after Christ's selfless love for his church. Walk as the light wherever you are. Let there be no hint of darkness on you. And expose the darkness around you. So that you would walk in wisdom, making the best use of the days that God has granted you. Let's pray. Father, your word is the only truth we can stand on. And God, you call us to be imitators of you, and we know we cannot do that in our own strength, Lord. So by your Spirit, would you help us to push aside these sins that we struggle with, that we'd be thankful leaning on you? Would you bring us courage, not wasting our time, that we would share the light of Christ with those around us who don't know you and remind our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ what they are called to. In Jesus' name, amen.